Method to the Madness is next. You're listening to Method to the Madness, a bi-weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley, celebrating Bay Area innovators. I'm Lisa Kiefer, and we're taking a field trip down to Stanford today to interview the clean energy mastermind, Professor Mark Jacobson. What do you do here at Stanford? Well, I teach and do research, and I study clean and renewable energy systems and air pollution and climate problems and how to solve them through clean and renewable energy. I read about you recently in the New Republic. Bill McKibben has written a really thoughtful article saying that our current climate crisis, what we need to do, he likens it to what we did in World War II to gear up to fight the Nazis and the Japanese. He mentions you and the work that you're doing. He talks about the solutions you have that are ready right now for all 50 states in the United States. What is that project? Well, we do research on developing plans for states and countries, and we've uh, completed plans for all 50 states and also now working on 139 countries around the world. Using all renewables. And yeah, the idea of the plan is to electrify all energy sectors. That's transportation, heating, cooling, industry, agriculture, forestry, and fishing, and provide that electricity with clean and renewable energy, such as wind and water and solar power, but combined with some energy storage, combined with energy efficiency, and some additional transmission. When did you come up with this plan? Well, our first plan was in 2009. It was really a world plan, just gross numbers to see if it was possible to power the world entirely 100% with wind and water and solar power for all purposes. And it wasn't broken down into countries, but from a, on a worldwide scale, if we just look at the raw numbers, it was possible because there's enough wind resource, there's enough solar resource and an existing water resource. And also, we looked at the materials required, we looked at the costs, we looked at the uh, land use required, and we found that all these are within reason and and potentially possible to do. How many years did it take you to come up with these very specific plans? Right, so then uh, after that, that was in 2009, and then subsequently uh, we started working in 2011 on a state plan uh, specifically for New York State. That got completed in 2013, so that took... Why did you choose New York first? Well, I started uh, working with some uh, people, activists in New York, well, people who are fighting against natural gas fracking, hydrofracking. They had wanted some alternative. What's, you know, what else can we do besides natural gas in the state of New York? And uh, in this group was Mark Ruffalo, who's um, also an actor, and uh, Marco Kraples, who is, um, he's a business person who lives actually in California, and Josh Fox, who's a documentarian. We kind of brainstormed and thought, well, why don't we take our energy plan for the world and squish it down to a state level? And so that's what I did with some uh, help with Mark DeLucci, who's a doctor researcher at UC Berkeley, and also um, eventually got some students involved. And we squished down a plan for New York, got some new data, and uh, it took a while to get all the information we needed, but by 2013, we had a New York energy plan. Okay, from 13 to now, you've rolled out the rest of the 50 states plus 127 countries in the world? Well, correct. So since then, in the middle of completing the New York plan, we started a California energy plan. We thought, well, we have one for New York. Why not apply to another state? So we got more experience improving the plans as we went along. And we did one for Washington state along the same time. Uh, I thought, well, why not just do all 50 states? We can automatize the process simultaneously. So we did that. And we completed those plans in 2015 for all 50 states. And then 
at the same time as we were completing that, we started working on, thought, well, why not go to, to the world and go to all individual countries, as many as we could. And so we found data for 139 countries, and that's what we're working on right now and trying to complete that. Okay. How many people are on this team who are crunching the numbers well, and going out into the field? Since uh, 2009, we've had about 80 scientists and students working on these energy plans, although there's kind of a core group of people who are doing most of the work. The group I talked about initially with Mark Ruffalo and Josh Fox and Marco Kraples, we started a nonprofit together. It's called the Solutions Project. And the idea of this was, well, why not take these energy plans that were developing these scientific science-based plans, but then we try to take those plans and educate the public and policymakers about them and do outreach and try to reach communities that might not normally be engaged in. It uh, makes so much sense to me because when I read this article in the New Republic, I thought, wow, they've probably been working on this for years, and yet it took this long to hear about it. That must be the biggest challenge, getting this information out to the layperson so that we can make political decisions in our communities to support it. Correct. I mean, that's my opinion is that yeah, getting information out to large numbers of people. I mean, keep in mind, there are 7.3 billion people in the world. And, you know, as a scientist, I might reach a few hundred to a few thousand at most. And, you know, even with uh, good outreach, you might reach 100,000 or something like that. But we really need to reach you know, hundreds of millions of people to have an impact worldwide. And so... So are you capitalizing on some of your successes? Like, for instance, what are some states who are doing this right now and how do we find out about that yeah well we've had actually had some really good uh, success and feedback so the states of both new york and california have basically adopted a portion of our plans um, we proposed 80 percent conversion to wind water and solar by 2030 in all energy sectors and 100 percent by 2050 california and new york have adopted a 50 percent conversion for the electricity sector which is only one of the sectors by 2030 and they've also adopted some other um, energy efficiency goals but part of that is because we published these papers for those states we uh, talked with the staff members of the governors and so they're they're aware of these plans and that it was possible, and so that enabled them to push the envelope into what policies they. But they're still not pushing it as far as you say they should. Correct. They're not. So what's the downside of that? There is downside because it means we'll have climate problems that will persist for a longer period of time, and we'll have air pollution problems that will persist for longer. So we're still trying to inform them about the necessity of getting to 80 percent by 2030 in all sectors. Uh, so there's there's ways to go, but um, we are making inroads. I should say there is a House resolution now based on our work, based on our 50 state plans, uh, House Resolution 540, which is calls for the United States to go to 100% clean renewable energy for all sectors by 2050. So that actually, well, it's just a resolution, but if it did pass, if subsequent bills were passed to support it, it would actually get to the end goal that we proposed. I think it has 44, 46 co-sponsors, including Nancy Pelosi as one of the co-sponsors. All three Democratic presidential candidates actually supported 100% goals by 2050, and Bernie Sanders had our maps on his website. Hillary Clinton, we have a videotape of her supporting 100% clean renewable energy by 2050. Martin O'Malley was the first one to go out there with 100% by 2050. There are also three senators have mentioned they were going to propose 100% renewable energy by 2050. I should also mention that the 100% idea has galvanized lots of nonprofits dozens and dozens of nonprofits that are now uh, centered around this goal. And they've actually then also helped to convince cities. Many cities want to go to 100% clean renewable energy, including you know, several in the United States and some in Canada. And 
companies as well. There are at least 60 to 70 companies, including many of the major ones, that want to go to 100% renewable energy, have committed to go to 100%. Uh, for example, Walmart. I read about Apple, Apple today. Apple and uh, Starbucks, Johnson & Johnson, and many of the top uh, companies. On the ride over here, I was in horrible traffic, and I couldn't help but thinking about how are you going to convince consumers to buy electric cars, how will they afford it? Number one, are we going to have to have subsidy programs along with a national grid or community redundant grids? Where does that all fit into this? Well, I think electric cars, I mean, most people, once they drive an electric car, they never want to go back. Of course, but how can they afford it? Like, in, let's talk about outside of the coasts. Well, there are many electric car companies now that are selling commodity cars. And so, and there is a $7,500 tax credit. So that basically brings the price of an electric car, even a low-cost electric car, uh, into the same cost as an equivalent gasoline car. So I think the, the costs are equivalent. And it's actually, it's, it's a lot cheaper to actually drive an electric car because the cost of the fuel is one-fourth to one-fifth the cost of gasoline per mile driven. So over the life of a car, if you drive a car 15,000 miles per year for 15 years, you will save $20,000 in fuel cost. The main thing that people have been concerned about is range. And so many of these electric cars now actually have longer range. I mean, of course, the Tesla, which is the Model S, it's 275 mile range. Um, but the you know even the uh, new lower cost Tesla, which hasn't been public yet, but as people have taken orders for it, things over 200 mile range. And then the, even the, the Leaf, I think, is over 100, 125 mile range. So that's the limiting factor for most commutes. 95% of commutes, all, all the electric cars are within range, and you can charge them in your home if you have a just a regular electric plug outlet or a special charger that can be put in your home. So that's an advantage. Another advantage of electric cars is you can charge them in your house or in your garage, whereas a gasoline car you can't. You know the disadvantage is, of course, it's, it takes longer to refuel, and they're. When, when you're out on the road, there's currently fewer charging stations, but there are a lot of charging stations out there now, and there are a lot and more and coming. And there is a plan to roll out many more, correct? Yeah, it really has to, if we want to do this on a large scale, we need a lot more charging stations. But the electric grid is there, so it's really a question of hooking up new charging stations to the grid, and these charging stations don't take up much space. When you're doing this planning state by state, are you also, are you setting up redundant grid systems in each state so that, you know, there is a national grid, but are they going to be able to, let's say, there's a climate catastrophe in one part of the country, will the other pieces of that grid be able to pick up the difference? Yeah, well, the grid is interconnected already across the United States, although the actual flow of electricity is limited by the size of the transmission lines. So we would need to go to 100%. We will need expansion of the transmission grid, or at least increasing the capacity of the grid so that you can send more uh, electricity long distance. For example, we'll have a lot of wind turbines in the Great Plains, or we already do, but we'd have more, and we might want to transfer more of that electricity to the East Coast because the electricity is so cheap. The generation is so cheap in the Great Plains. It's it's two cents a kilowatt hour now with the subsidy and, and three and a half without That's a subsidy. Amazing. And that compares to natural gas, which is five to six cents a kilowatt hour as the actual cost of energy. So wind is the cheapest form of electricity in the U.S., but a lot of it is in places that are far away. And so transmission would be beneficial. It also helps because if the wind's not blowing in one place, it is usually blowing somewhere else. So having a more interconnected transmission system would actually make things more efficient. Same thing with solar. I mean, it's not always sunny in some places because you have a lot of clouds. Mm -hmm. In the U.S., there are some long distance, which called high voltage direct current or HVDC long distance transmission lines going up. I and mean, there's a, what's called the clean power line or it's a company that has proposals for several long distance 
corridors across the U.S., and I think they've had uh, one or two of them already approved, and they may even be building, but I can't say for sure what stage they're at. You kind of controversially have left off nuclear power in your renewables. Can you tell me why you've taken that stance? Yeah, it's interesting because the people who are supportive of nuclear power just say, you know, I'm biased against nuclear, but, you know, this is all based on a scientific research that, well, nuclear is is better than a lot of energy technologies such as coal, gas, and oil, for the most part. It's not as good as clean renewable energy such as wind, water, and solar, and that's just a scientific conclusion. I mean, aside from the fact that it it takes so long to put up a nuclear plant, between 10 and 19 years between planning and operation. We don't have that time. And we don't have that time. It's the same two to five years is typical for a wind or solar farm. So not only do we delay getting that energy, but it also right now it costs uh, about four times more than onshore wind. So it's 12 and a half cents a kilowatt hour for the unsubsidized cost of nuclear uh, versus the unsubsidized cost of onshore wind is three and a half cents a kilowatt hour subsidized is two cents. So we're talking one fourth the cost. So not only do you have to wait three times longer to get the nuclear up, but you also have to pay four times more for the same power. And and that's only the beginning. The, the other problems are, some people would say, even more severe. I mean, there's meltdown risk. 1.5% of all nuclear reactors ever built have melted down to some degree. Nuclear weapons proliferation risk. I mean, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says there's there's robust evidence and high agreement that uh, nuclear energy proliferation leads to nuclear weapons proliferation. And this is because several countries of the world have developed weapons secretly under the guise of civilian nuclear energy programs. There's waste issues. We haven't figured out what to do with all the waste that accumulates and you have to store it for 300,000 years. And that takes a lot of energy that's, and cost of storing that that don't, aren't even accounted for in the cost of energy today of the nuclear. You know, and then there's uh, the carbon dioxide emissions. People say that, oh, nuclear is zero carbon. Well, it's not zero carbon whatsoever. I mean, you have to, when you're, you use uranium and you have to mine the uranium that takes fossil fuels then you have to refine it it's a very energy intensive process to refine uranium and you have to do that throughout the life of the reactor fossil fuel carbon dioxide emissions and other air pollutant emissions and the fact that it takes so long to put up a nuclear plant the difference in the time it takes to put up the nuclear plant versus the wind or solar plant you're running the regular electric power grid and so you have to assign those emissions to the nuclear as well and so we're talking when you actually add everything up it's between six and 24 times more carbon and air pollution per kilowatt hour compared to wind energy. So oh, That's a no-brainer. Yeah, it's, that it's not just one problem. If you, you can't just solve one problem and say, oh, nuclear is good. You really have to solve a set of five I or think six it, problems. it's an old idea. I mean, I can remember reading in the 90s that uh, thought that had to be a part of the mix to fuel, well, a lot of people, fuel the world. So. I mean, a lot of people, nuclear supporters, uh, think that nuclear is necessary because it's, uh, it's very high energy density, so you can, you can, you can a provide a lot of power in a small area. But the fact is it has so many side effects effects that, um, you know, it's just not as good at this point. And if yeah. nothing else worked, then yeah, maybe try that. You've, you're up against a, a massive opponent, and that's the carbon industry. I'm surprised they're not pushing back more. I mean, I get more pushback from nuclear people than I do from fossil fuel people. They know they have enough power and control that they, you know, they don't have to respond to you know, studies or what other people think about them. They can just, just keep doing what they're doing. They, you know, they find that they don't really need to respond. But if we get a Congress that will pass this plan. Oh, yeah. No, our plans would have them completely phased out and they would be eliminated. Um, so they should be worried. But, you know, on the other hand, there's most of the energy is still produced by fossil fuels, by far most of the energy worldwide. And so it's such a, they have such a large penetration still that, you know, they haven't felt any um, risk yet of 
of disappearing. But, you know, the writing is on the wall, and they will eventually disappear. It's just a question of time. I was reading that Washington State Mm -hmm. is actually the farthest along in terms of percentage of renewables toward that goal of 100% in 2050. It is, but it's because of hydroelectric power that's existing hydroelectric in the state. So you won't be building more dams. You're going to make present dams more efficient. Right. Our plans call for no new conventional hydroelectric dams and just making existing dams more efficient. I should point out that there are, in the United States, there are 80,000 dams and only, I think, 10,000 produce electricity. So there are, most of the dams in the U.S. are non-power dams. And so, in theory, you could power some of those without actually creating a new dam, just to create power from them. And you could also, like, because a lot of people want to remove dams, and so there are literally 70,000 dams available to remove without removing, for example, the powering dams. The reason hydroelectric power is so useful in this solution is that a hydroelectric reservoir is a basically a big battery. And when you need, like, the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. And so when the when you, let's say you have no wind and no sunlight, it's actually very valuable to have um, hydroelectric power because you can you can basically turn it off and on instantaneously uh, and then allowing it to provide the power when you need it to fill in gaps and supply. What's your plan for, say, Louisiana, who just experienced horrible rains, like the thousand-year rains and flooding? What would a state like that look like with your plan? The South in general is pretty uh, very weak winds, except offshore, um, but they have good solar radiation, although it's not as good as the Southwest, which has more clear skies because there are more cloudy skies in the Southeast. But there's a lot of sunlight in Louisiana, so solar is a major part. Then they have offshore wind as well. So those they certainly the, have offshore platforms. Yeah, they have offshore platforms, but offshore wind and solar are the two major uh, sources. It might be advantageous also to have transmission into the state from other states that have much greater wind to the west. What, what is the most challenging state or country that you've had to come up with a plan for? So far, I would say Singapore. And why most, is that? Basically, it's, it's a very small country that is very high population density, so its population really covers most of the land. So there's not a lot of room to put clean renewable energy. You have rooftops, the rooftops aren't sufficient enough, but there is offshore wind as well. Um, So we might have to go to offshore floating solar, in fact. I should point out, though, that that's only if we decided Singapore had to be powered entirely with its own energy. It could actually just transmit energy from nearby. There is a solution to that problem, too, just from transmitting from outside of it. But if you just wanted to have it provide its own energy, these kind of some of these uh, smaller countries like Gibraltar has a similar issue. But there's a solution to everything if you add transmission. People complain that the sun is and all shining, but if you do have batteries, you can then provide more reliable electricity either either back to the grid or for your own use in your home. Mm-hmm. So basically, if you have batteries and solar on your roof, you know you're a power plant, and you can provide. Uh, you have the ability to smooth out the rest of the grid. Tesla bought Solar City, and so they want to really. Tesla wants to become a battery storage company as well as a motor company and so the idea is to take solar panels on the roof and then use batteries to store that electricity so integrate the batteries with the solar panels on the roof a lot more and even make roofing material that has solar panels in them which is a great thing to do to integrate batteries with rooftop solar. Are there technologies on the horizon that wouldn't be called batteries, that they're a whole different kind of... Yeah, actually, well, we looked when we developed plans for all 50 states, uh, we did a, a study where we said, can we keep the grid reliable over the continental United States, that's 48 states. And we found that we can if we combine generation of wind and solar, which are what are called intermittent, it doesn't, wind doesn't always blow, the sun doesn't always shine, with 
low-cost heat and cold storage and electricity storage. And I should point out that, first of all, if you electrify all sectors, if you electrify heating, cooling, industry, transportation, you make it easier to match power demand on the grid because there are a lot more lo what are called loads of energy requ or energy requirements that are what are called flexible. You don't have to hook a wind turbine up to your car to drive the car. You have batteries so you can charge the car any time of day or night. By electrifying all sectors and then you use low-cost heat and cold storage. So for example, ice. You can have an ice cube under a building in fact, Stanford has had an ice cube under a building since 1998. And during the night when electricity price is low, it produced the ice. And then during the day, instead of using high cost electricity for air conditioning during the day, you would run the water through the ice. And so you basically, yeah. by using cold storage and ice, you eliminate electricity use in the afternoon and during the peak. And you can do the same thing with hot water and cold water. Uh, you can store, yeah, you can store heat in, uh, in water and store cold in water as well. But and there's another, I mean, there's a community in Canada, Okotoks, Canada, which is an hour south of Calgary, that they have 52 homes that have um, on their garage roofs have these solar collectors that collect sunlight in the summer in a glycol solution. That glycol solution gets transferred through pipes to a building where it passes by water, heats the water. The water then gets piped underground to heat rocks that are stored underground. The rocks get heated up to 80 degrees Celsius until wintertime. They're insulated around them, and in winter, the whole thing is run in reverse and provides 100% of the wintertime heating when snow is on the ground. And you can't even tell this facility is there because the rocks are under a, a park. That's well, so ingenious. It's, it's uh, Yeah, it's called seasonal heat storage, so it's a way you can actually store heat over a season, and it's so inexpensive. I mean, a battery, battery electricity is $300 a kilowatt hour. Rock energy is $1 a kilowatt hour, so <laughs> it's cheaper. In fact, the ice is $30 a kilowatt hour, $38 a kilowatt hour same with hot and cold water they're all like one-tenth the cost of batteries there's also what's called pumped hydroelectric power when you you have two reservoirs uh, and when you have excess electricity you pump water up the hill and when you need electricity you let the water drain down the hill and so you basically you don't lose water that way and it's not a dam necessarily but a reservoir and it could one of the reservoirs could be the ocean or a lake and then uh, there's concentrated solar power where you in the deserts where because normally with photovoltaics unless you have batteries it's hard to store the electricity. But if you have what's called concentrated solar power, uh, you focus light off of mirrors onto a central tower. The tower has a fluid, uh, molten nitrate salt, for example, that heats up, and that fluid can be stored and used at night to generate electricity by, you pass the hot fluid by water, create steam from the water, the steam runs a steam turbine to generate electricity. So that's called concentrated solar power storage. And if you do this on a large scale, that's a lot of solar energy that can be stored. Without but, batteries. Yeah, and you can use it at night or with when it's cloudy. And that's also one-tenth the cost of batteries for electricity storage. So it sounds like there's going to be a lot of potential solutions in the future that you could incorporate into these 50 plans. Yeah, well, these are all existing solutions, but they're not on a large scale. Right. So we just need to scale them up to huge scale. I read about your organization that you actually give grants out. The Solutions Project, it's a nonprofit that, um, I mean, the goal is to take energy plans and educate the public and policymakers about them and try to engage the public. But part of their um, mission right now is to give out small grants to groups that, mostly nonprofits, that have creative ideas of how to get information out better, how to make a more effective change. I wanted to ask you about how this idea came into fruition. Yeah, well, I mean, my whole career I've been... I started 
at Stanford as a professor in 1994, but, you know, it was way back when I was a teenager. My goal was to try to solve, understand and solve air pollution problems, and soon after, climate problems. This was back in the 19, early 1980s. Where did you grow up? In Los Altos. So I've always had that goal and passion to try to understand and solve large-scale pollution and climate problems. But when I first started doing research at Stanford, I focused on the problems and understanding them, but I then did a lot of intercomparisons of energy technologies and their impacts on health and climate. Late 1990s started looking at wind energy in particular as, as a potential solution to some of these problems. And so did studies on the analysis of wind energy with with students and, as well. But then in around 2008, I decided I had enough information. I wanted to start comparing different proposed energy solutions to climate and air pollution. So I did an inner comparison study evaluating what are the best technologies. And that's when I came up with the conclusion that it was wind and water and solar power that were the best. You know, nuclear and coal with carbon capture were kind of more mediocre and then Things like you know, natural gas and biofuels were the worst in terms of health and climate and water supply and, and uh, land use and catastrophic risk and things like that. But then the next question was, well, if you have wind and water and solar as the best technologies, can you actually then power the world with all the, with these technologies given you know resource limitations, land use limitations? And we did a study. That's when I started partnering with Mark DeLucci at UC Berkeley. And we concluded that it is possible. It's technically and economically possible, but there are social and political barriers. And we said, well, it's even technically possible by 2030, but for social and political reasons, it's unlikely we can get to 100% until 2050. But really, once we did a paper on that, that was a global paper. And that's, you know, nobody controls the whole globe. So we eventually had to go down to state levels and country levels to see if it was possible to do a practical plan. Do you really think, based on what's happened so far, that we'll reach the goal of 100% by 2050 based on what you've done already? I think there is a there's a growing. I mean, I, we're a lot further now than even two years ago. I mean, I think people's mindset. I mean, more people are talking about getting to 100. percent So that, it's almost growing exponentially in terms of how people are talking and thinking. Do you think about it's it. the catastrophic weather that's pushing this kind of attitude? Yeah. Well, it's a combination of problems are getting worse. The climate problems are getting worse, and more people are saying we need to solve the problem. Even the insurance companies are saying it's an oh my god issue. Yeah. yeah so there are more people on board, but it's also fortunate that the costs of especially wind and solar and batteries or even batteries and in, in electric cars are coming down especially the, in the electric power sector people are suddenly thinking wow we could actually we can have a high penetration of wind and solar because it's so cheap that we could really ramp it up so it's kind of a combination of more people being aware of it and wanting to solve the problem and simultaneously costs have come down and there have been technology improvements and ex- existing technologies that are needed to solve the problem so a lot of things are coming together but there's still also growth, especially in many countries, like, you know, even though China, for example, is putting in a lot of renewable energy, it's also putting in a lot of coal still. And that's troubling. And But there are other countries in the world also growing. And the pollution, the emissions are still going up in a lot of places, although they're coming down in some other places. But you do see trends in several countries in Europe. So you can see their emissions are going down already, uh, but not as fast as we need them to. We are going to experience some pretty wild weather, even if we were on 100, 100% yeah. renewables today. By definition, I mean, climate is the average of all weather events. And so weather is very variable in the first place. But we do get more extreme weather with higher average temperatures. And- on average, I mean, this will probably be one the warmest, if not the warmest year on record and in individual months as well. But climate, again, you have to average over a long period and look at the trends uh, rather than the actual value in a given year. It's really the trend that matters. 
definitely the trend is everything is warming up and the temperatures are over one degree Celsius higher than uh, in the 1800s. And, you know, that's that's significant. I mean, the rate of change of temperature today is faster than any time, even since deglaciation from the last ice age. So Paris agreement that, you know, they, they agreed to try to avoid two degrees Celsius, but it's really one and a half degrees that a lot of people wanted them to um, avoid. I and mean, we're already at one degree so we're yeah. only half a degree away from that. And how many parts per million are we at already? We want we should be at 350, and where are we? Where are we today? For a little over 400 I mean, parts it, per million. And so this is significant. I mean, I think sometimes we don't scare the public enough about what's coming down the road in 50 years. And oh yeah, no, the problem is actually much worse than most people think because half of the warming in the atmosphere is being hidden by pollution, air pollution particles, because they're both reflective in general and they enhance cloudiness. So if you actually just cleaned up air pollution particles, which you want to do because they cause 90% of the air pollution health problems, which kill four to seven million people every year, as you clean up that air pollution, you actually make the warming worse because of the masking that's going on. And so that is another reason it's so urgent to not only eliminate the particles from a health point of view, but also the greenhouse gases from a climate point of view simultaneously. And the only way you can simultaneously eliminate the greenhouse gases and the particles is by changing the energy infrastructure by electrifying everything and producing that electricity from clean and renewable wind, water, and solar power. There is a solution to this problem, and that's changing the energy infrastructure of, of cities, states, countries, and the world. Change your own home to the extent you can by electrifying everything. And if you can put solar on your roof, then you can provide that electricity from your own power. You can even add some batteries to store it so you don't have to pay um, for the remaining power that you do use if you do use it. You know, try to uh, select policymakers who are more supportive of clean and renewable And here we are coming up on an election cycle, and that, to me, is extremely important. And especially a Congress that will pass something like this. Do you have a website that people can go to if they want to find out more about this project, yeah, Solutions this, Project? Well, there's two websites, thesolutionsproject.org, it's one word, then 100.org, the number 100.org. So that's a subgroup of the Solutions Project, which is basically the idea is to bring 100% clean and renewable energy to 100% of the people 100% of the time. Well, Mark, I really appreciate you being on Method to the Madness. Sure. So thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me on. You've been listening to Method to the Madness, a bi-weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley, celebrating Bay Area innovators. 